Amen. Good morning, everyone. We do have an unstoppable God, and His glory goes on and on, and so we gather in His name to worship Him. Uh, if you have your Bibles, we're going to read the Scripture now tonight. This morning, our text today is found in the book of Colossians, New, New Testament book. Paul writing to the church at Colossae. I'm going to read from chapter 4, verses 2 to 6. We continue this theme we've been on now for a number of weeks on hot topics. We've covered some hot ones, and today is no different. We want to talk about science and the Bible. Now, next week, we will conclude the series on hot topics with a sermon titled, The Christian and Politics. Is he crazy? He must be crazy. No, you should come. You don't want to miss. Uh, it'll be interesting to see what I have to say. I'm anxious to hear it myself, and so <laughs> we'll see what happens. <laughs> but today's science in the Bible I've taken as our text from Colossians 4. If you don't have your Bible, that's okay. We've got the words ready to project on the screen. And this is the Apostle Paul now speaking to the people of God. He said, devote yourselves to prayer, being watchful and thankful, and pray for us, too, that God may open a door for our message so that we may proclaim the mystery of Christ for which I am in chains. Pray that I may proclaim it clearly as I should. Be wise in the way you act toward outsiders, you know, folks outside of the faith. Make the most of every opportunity. Let your conversation be always full of grace, seasoned with salt, so that you may know how to answer everyone. Now that last word, everyone. Everyone has a story, right? Everyone has a perspective. Everyone has a worldview. And so today... May we be sensitive to everyone in the point of their journey so that they might find the hope that we've found in Christ. Amen? All right. Thank you so much. You may be seated. On December the 10th, 1964, Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. received the Nobel Prize uh, for Peace. And, of course, Dr. King was in exquisitely articulate around the message of his life and deeply passionate about his mission. And so as he received the Nobel Prize... I want to read just a couple of excerpts from his acceptance speech. He said, I accept this award today with an audacious faith in the future of all mankind. I refuse to accept the idea that the isness of man's present nature makes him morally incapable of reaching up for the eternal oughtness that forever confronts him. I refuse to accept the idea that man is mere flotsam and jetsam in the river of life, unable to influence the unfolding events which surround him. I refuse to accept the view that mankind is so tragically bound to the starless midnight of racism and war that the bright daybreak of peace and brotherhood can never become a reality. I refuse to accept the cynical notion that nation after nation must spiral down a militaristic stairway into the hell of thermonuclear destruction. And then this last statement. I want you to see it. I'll put it on the screen for you. He said, I believe that unarmed truth, hear that, unarmed truth and unconditional love will have the final word in reality. Unarmed truth, unconditional love. Now, most of you know that science is the measure of the physical world. It's just an attempt by people to understand, comprehend the physical world around us and to theorize about that. And what we, what we discover, though, is that if our entire educational ethos, the whole spirit, culture, of how we learn is built only on the naturalistic world, the physical world, and a scientific single vision of ultimate reality, then we're, we're, forced to, we're forced to choose which scientific method or structure we're going to choose to interpret what ultimate reality is. 
And of course, unarmed truth and unconditional love are not scientific in nature. These are more philosophical concepts, metaphysical, if you will. And so it leaves us with some gaps. Now, I think science is great. I, I love the study of science. I, I was a science major or minor in college. Um, I, I love the, the physical world. I, I love uh, the, whole, the whole aspect of, of astronomy. And I, you've heard me talk about my inclination toward dimensional physics and all that stuff. I, love, I just love to let my brain get into that. And so Christians, Bible-believing Christians should be the first one to welcome the, you know, the latest thing that science happens to unpack or discover and reveal to us about the physical world. In my worldview, science helps me to understand the vastness and the complexity of God himself. Let me give you an example of this. This is from a scientist named Francis Collins. He's a devoted follower of Jesus Christ and happens to be a scientist who now leads the Human Genome Project and is currently the director of the National Institutes of Health. And so he's, he's got credentials and, and he's got some capacity. And he'll tell you that when you look at a strand of DNA, for example, it has specific design. There are 3.1 billion bits of information all of which is coded with specific bits of information that makes the human body possible. 3.1 billion, every strand of DNA. And of course, the implication is if you've got 3.1 billion bits of information, then you must, you must conclude, you may, may assume that there's an informer, that there's an intelligence or a designer behind 3.1 billion bits of information that help us be fully human. So science can really be our friend and point us to some amazing conclusions about God and his creativity uh, if we allow it into our worldview. And so it can then allow us to think about, lead us to, if you will, to issues like morality and meaning and love and, and hope. And these are important and intrinsic needs that all of us have. So unarmed truth and unconditional love can be met only if we allow the worldview that we embrace to include not just the physical world, but also a world that cannot be seen and therefore measured. Let me tell you about a philosopher in history. He, he lived between 1844 and 1900. His name was Friedrich Nietzsche. Now, Nietzsche was the son of a pastor, a Christian preacher. Both of his grandfathers were Christian pastors. I'm not sure that his family was particularly proud of him because he became an atheist, an agnostic, a skeptic, and was the first to actually coin the phrase, if you will, God is dead. Uh, you, you can read his writings. He became very popular and, was, and remains a very popular uh, philosophical uh, person in, in academia today. Uh, and so he was the first to declare that God is dead, and as a result of that, it has given rise, as you know, as you suspect, especially if you've been in school in recent years, you know that naturalism and rationalism and actualism, materialism, that a scientific theory which continues to be central in our thinking about ultimate reality and pushing to the margins the whole concepts and values of faith and spirituality in our postmodern, post-Christian world. But it begs the question, there are still these unanswered questions that science can never leap to include. And I want to just rehearse those questions, or at least a few of them with you this morning. The first is this, from where do we find our moral framework? From where do we get our moral compass, our moral values? 
If actualism is in total control, materialism is all there is out there, there are, there are no absolutes that, that matter plus time plus, plus chance equals ultimate reality. If that's, if that's the limited nature of your worldview, and there, there are no absolutes, there, there is no transcendent being, we live only on the horizontal level, and we, we do not embrace the vertical to consider that there's a transcendent being, a, a God who is greater than we are beyond our comprehension and and with the vertical therefore no bottom no limit to human behavior we don't include that uh, even if that human behavior is depraved let me ask you this question if that if that's the worldview that you embrace where does that leave you where does that leave all of us gk chesterton said it this way there's only one angle that will permit you to stand now follow it he said there are many angles from which you can fall that makes sense, right? The danger is not that you'll end up believing in nothing. Alas, he said, it's much worse. You may end up believing in anything. And so we live in a world now where people are testing these angles. You know, can I live this way and still remain standing? Can I live with this particular lifestyle and still remain standing? You know, as a nation, we might ask, you know, how much debt can a nation absorb before it just implodes economically and falls over? And so it's an important question. So science is given the question, from where does the moral law come? In today's world, we test these angles to try to figure those out on our own. Let me take you back now to relative recent history. And this to the Nazi regime of World War II. There was a place that they built called Auschwitz. It's in Poland. And Auschwitz was a death camp. At the height of its depravity, you may even say its efficiency, 12,000 people were being put to death, and burned to ashes every single day. Horrific. Adolf Eichmann was one of the architects of the death camps, and he said, quote, the first time I saw people herded into the gas chambers, it was difficult to comprehend. Really? Difficult for you. He goes on to say, uh, we soon learned that we could kill dozens of people at one time with speed and efficiency. And then finally, one death, he said, is a tragedy. One million deaths is a statistic. Wow. Adolf Hitler, by the way, was a huge proponent of the philosopher I just described, Frederick Nietzsche. He, uh, he loved Nietzsche and his God is dead philosophy. And just outside the ovens in Auschwitz today, there is a placard with a quote from history from, from Adolf Hit Hitler, and it reads... I want to raise a generation of young people devoid of a conscience, imperial, relentless, and cruel. Hmm. If you travel to Nuremberg, Germany today and visit the location of the post-war tribunals where many war criminals were tried and sentenced, you might find it interesting to note that placed just above the tribunal in the great hall there where these trials were conducted, just above uh, the, the front of the tribunal is now posted the Ten Commandments. And if you leave the Great Hall in Nuremberg today, at the doorway, you'll see depicted over the top of the doorway is the image of the Garden of Eden and the great temptation in quotes where it reads, you shall be as gods. You may not be sensitive to this, but perhaps you are, that we are at another crossroads in our history, the history of humanity on this planet. We are, we are living in very dubious times, very perplexing times. And what we have to decide as a race at this crossroads of time is whether we're going to allow God to be God 
or we're going to assume the position of God. We're going to allow God to have his way and live according to his best design for us, or we're going to live according to the, to the uh, ideas that we can generate within ourselves. The fact is that science and rational thinking, no matter how precise and accurate with all the facts in place, cannot lead us into a place of moral reasoning. So where are we going to turn for these moral values? I mean, uh, Moses came along and he gave us 630-some laws that have to do with morality. Then, then David came along and reduced it to about 15, Isaiah down to 11. Then Jesus came on the earth and someone asked him one day, he, they said, Jesus, what is the greatest commandment? And he said, the, all of the commands of God can be contained in these two, which are love God with all of your heart, mind, soul, and strength, and love your neighbor as yourself. These are, the, these are the greatest commands, he said. All of the laws and the prophets are contained within these two. And then that same day, there was, a, there was a guy and a group trying to trap him in a certain position. And they said, is it lawful, is it lawful to pay taxes to Caesar? And Jesus knew what they were up to. And so he said, does anyone have a coin? And one, a guy produced the coin. He said, what image, what inscription is on the coin? They said, it's the, it's the image of Caesar. And so Jesus' answer was, well, render to Caesar, give to Caesar what belongs to Caesar and give to God what belongs to God. Interesting answer. Wouldn't it have been fun? Wouldn't it have been fun if when they said, is it right for us to pay taxes to Caesar? Jesus would have said, oh, no, you don't have to pay your taxes. <laughs> How cool would that have been? We'd have been off the hook from then on. But instead, he said, give to Caesar what belongs to him. Give to God what belongs to him. It's interesting, when they heard that answer, they knew they couldn't trap him anymore, and so they all went away. But it left a very important question hanging. They said, is it right to pay taxes to Caesar? And Jesus said, give to Caesar what belongs to him, and give to God what belongs to God. The next follow-up question is, well, what belongs to God? What belongs to God? That would be a good question, right? And if they had asked Jesus that question, I know what Jesus would have said. He would, have, he would have said, what image is on you? And the answer to that question is, God's image is on us. We have the imprint of God. We have been made in the image and likeness of God. And that's what gives life meaning. That's what gives us a sense of purpose. That's what gives us identity. This is what gives us our essential worth. That's what does it. A life that moves only in the horizontal realm of the physical realm without also moving vertically, will be lacking in this essential worth. Mm -hmm. There is no eternal oughtness, as Dr. King would, would say. No, and, and therefore, we have no right to violate one another personally. We have no right to violate our personal property. I have no right to invade your life. And the reason why I have no right to do that is because you have been made in the image and likeness of God. It gives you your essential worth. You can summarize the whole Bible. You can summarize the law of God, the Ten Commandments, this way. Your body is sacred. Your life is sacred. Your possessions are sacred. Your marriage is sacred. Your word is sacred. Your time is sacred. And so is your neighbor's. You have, you have a right to your choices. And this is the freedom of choice that God has given to every human being. This is the greatest gift that God has given us. And you have a right to choose your life and the way you live your life. And you have the right to choose your destiny, your eternal destiny. That's the gift of God. But just remember, every choice you make has consequences. 
But such is the responsibility to those who have been made in the image and likeness of God. It is only possible for us to have this level of freedom because we have been made in the image and likeness of God. And so the question then comes from where do we gain a moral framework? Where, where do we understand the values necessary to live our lives in a meaningful way? Leads to the second question that's on your outline. It's this, from where do I find ultimate meaning? Where do I find ultimate meaning? When you ask uh, the emergent generation today, uh, people, young people 15 to 35 years old, uh, men especially, and increasingly so, larger numbers of women as well, when, when you ask them what is your greatest struggle, they will tell you that it is pornography, viewing pornography. And so is the reality of the culture in which we live. Now, it's interesting that pornography is an experience that, that actually denudes, um, takes away from the essential worth of one person, literally strips them down and makes them an object, objectifies a person, removing their essential worth as a human being and making them an object to be viewed in, order to, in exchange for a feeling that you get. So when you view pornography, you're objectifying the other person, essentially stripping them, denuding them of their, of their value as a human being so that you can experience a particular feeling. Now, when you ask the, the next question, what are, you, what are you also most troubled with? This aim, same age group, 15 to 35, both men and women will tell you that stalking, the stalking, haunting fear of suicide is a great struggle. Most people are not making the connection between these two great struggles in young people's lives right now, but they, they are very much connected because as it turns out, when you denude the value of another person through pornography, you're also devaluing yourself. So suicide is a massive problem in today's youth culture and it is directly related to a lack of meaning and a lack of purpose. Meaning is, found, meaning is found when we understand who we are and who made us the way we are and we give God praise for that and we accept ourselves intrinsically valuable because life in the image and likeness of God is inherently sacred and meaningful and valuable. You say, well, where do, where do you get meaning? Where do you get meaning? There, there are four places at least where you can derive personal meaning and significance, and I want to just give those to you. Uh, they're not in your outline, but you might want to write them down. I'll put them on the screen for you so you can write it down. One is that, that in order to, to have purpose, you need a sense of wonder. I mean, you remember when you were a child, you'd read these, uh, these fairy tales, or when you read them to your children or your grandchildren now? Do you, do you pick up on the sense of wonder that occurs in these children's lives when you're reading these fairy tales? I mean, they're fantastic stories. They're not true, but they create a sense of wonder. And, and you can just see the sparkle and the imagination and the creativity happening in children's lives when you read these things. But, of course, as children get older, they become more sophisticated and they realize, those, those are fairy tales. Those are not true. Those are not true. So what happens is that people instinctively and intuitively begin looking for that which is fantastically true. So think about this just for a minute. Let's assume that God is real, that God exists, he is real, he is great, he is above us, he's beyond our comprehension. In fact, he's so, he's so powerful that the Bible suggests that 
through his uh, merely speaking a word, his spoken word, the universe, the physical world in which we live, comes into existence. Comes into existence. And, this, and, fr and friends, this, this is contrasted with this assumption that is made that in the, in the physical realm, uh, the truth is that, the, that anything in the physical realm cannot justify its own existence, can't create its own existence. You know, the, the scientist and God decided one day they're going to have a competition to create life. The scientist said, look, I figured out how to clone life and I can create another human life. I don't need God. And so God and the scientist got together in front of the world and the scientist says, I'll just go first. I'll make a man. He gets some dust and gathers it up. And God's, God says, what are you doing? He said, well, I'm just putting some dirt together here. And God looked at him and said, no, no. So you got to get your own dirt. <laughs> Maybe that's where we should end the sermon right there. I mean, that, that seemed to connect. But if God is real and he exists and he's great and he's powerful and he's created the world, that is fantastic. That is fantastically true. And that creates in us a sense of wonder. There's a God out there I can't even get my, I can't even come close to getting my mind around. He is so big, so bad, so amazing. But do you understand that when you have that sense of wonder, it's instinctive within us that it actually gives us a sense of meaning, purpose in life. I believe in something that's bigger and grander than myself. In fact, bigger than the whole world. Another thing that gives us meaning is the awareness of truth. Jesus said, I am the truth, the way and the life. And connecting with Jesus connects me with truth, ultimate reality. And I, and I actually get meaning from that. I, I know the truth, and the truth liberates me. It helps me. It enlightens me. It empowers me. And so truth helps us to have meaning. And then the third thing is the experience of love. And, and so God loves us with an everlasting love, an unconditional love. And when we experience God's love in this way, in a, in a relationship, a personal relationship with him, it allows us to experience, to experience, not just to theorize, to imagine, to contemplate, but to experience, to absorb, to assimilate, to actually feel the love of God. Gives us meaning. I'm a lovable person. God loves me. I mess up all the time, but I must be lovable because God loves me. I, I know that I don't deserve to be loved, but God says he still loves me and accepts me and forgives me. I must have value. I must have meaning as a person. And the last thing, of course, is the knowledge of security. The last two weeks we've been talking about heaven and then about hell, and we concluded that every single person who's ever lived is going to spend eternity somewhere, either in a place called heaven or a place called hell. And when you know that you're bound for heaven, not on your own merits or your own efforts or your own ability, but because of the wonderful gift of God that has been expressed to us in Jesus Christ and we can accept for ourselves this gift of eternal life, it gives us great security and gives us hope for the future. Therefore, it gives us meaning. It gives us meaning in life. Everyone needs purpose. Everyone needs meaning. So the search for a moral law, the quest for meaning comes in a relationship with God. I heard the story of a woman who, who fantasized and, and, and imagined a wild, indulgent affair, thinking that that would somehow fulfill her and satisfy her needs. And she was getting a little older in life. She realized this may be the last chance I have. And so she went out and just had a riotous affair. And when she came home, she discovered that she was depressed, 
that it hadn't delivered on the promise to fulfill. Listen to me carefully, friend. Your loneliest moment will be when you have just experienced that which has promised ultimate fulfillment and it doesn't satisfy. It's a bad day. It's a bad moment. Therefore, the life that Christ offers you is, is one where meaning is found in a personal relationship with him. That's when things become sacred. That's when life becomes sacred. That's when life at its very core, your life, takes on intrinsic worth, not extrinsic worth as conveyed or defined by the state. It's the question of absolutes. And many people in our world, as you know, uh, reject the notion of absolutes, especially spiritual and, and moral absolutes. But the world, look, the world is designed with absolutes. And, you, you know, you can, you can be in denial of that, but, the, but, if, but it's true. Otherwise, you have a one-ended stick. Everything's relative. Everything is random. When you start with the premise that everything is of pragmatic value and not of essential value, of 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 relative value, not essential value, then you veer off into the distance with nothing remaining sacred anymore, and you find yourself standing on nothing but 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 air. And there's no place to get your get your traction, get your footing. Many of you know the name Antonin Scalia. He uh, recently passed away. He was a long-standing justice on the United States Supreme Court. Many of his quotes have been offered about since his passing. I saw him giving a speech uh, the other day on TV, and so I wrote down a couple of these quotes, and this is what he said, and I quote, he said, sophisticated thinkers can believe in God. Then he said, sophisticated thinkers can believe in a personal God. And then he said, sophisticated thinkers can believe in Jesus Christ, the very Son of God. Good for him. Meaning ultimately comes in finding what is sacred. When things become sacred, it gives your life meaning. When the proper things become sacred, you know where the boundaries are. You understand the rules, the values of morality and meaning. That leads me to the third question, which science simply cannot connect to. It cannot leap to accommodate this question. And the question is, what about hope? What about hope? <laughs> If life really ends at the moment our heart stops and our brain tissue dies, then please explain to me the reason for hope. Explain to me the existence of hope. Why do some people have it? Where does it come from? From where does it originate? A leading uh, sheikh, a, sh a sheikh rather, in the Muslim world recently said this, and I quote, maybe it's time we stopped asking if Jesus really died on a cross and start asking why. That's a lucid moment. Our greatest need, friend, is not for a new political leader. Our greatest need isn't for a better educational system, better opportunity. Those needs are important, of course, but those aren't our greatest need. Our greatest need and the greatest need of every human being in the world is a need that is experienced at the level of our heart, the essence of who we are. We all need someone who's bigger than us, stronger than us, brighter than us to help us. We need help. We need a savior. That's the greatest need that every person has. So without God, without his truth, there is no moral law, there is no meaning in life, there is no hope. And that leads me to this last point that I want to make, and that is the supremacy of the practice of love. The supremacy, the, the, the highest value of the, of, the, of the ethic, the practice of love. Winston uh, Churchill was asked by a corporal, uh, during World War II, he said, Mr. Churchill, have I ever talked to you about my, about my grandchildren? And Mr. Churchill said, no one, I want 
you don't know how much I appreciate it. <laughs> so, if you, some of you get that. True story of a mother with her four-year-old son. She is frantic in the house trying to find her car keys. Can't find her car keys. Can I get a witness? And, and, and so here she is. She's, she is just rising in intensity, anxiety, and stress, trying to find her car keys. And finally, she stops, and she's pounding her forehead with her, with her hand. And she says, I am, I am losing my mind. Can't find the keys. To which, this is a true story, the, her four-year-old son walks up to her, takes her by the hands, looks her right in the eyes, and says, please don't lose your heart, Mommy, because that's where I am. Yeah, ah. Here, watch. Here's the question, though. Where did that come from? Where did the intuition for that boy to ask that question, where did that come from? It was the source of that. So you have, to, you have to come to some answer with that. There are four Greek words for love. They are storge, protective love, phileo, friendship love, eros, romantic love, and agape, which is God's kind of love. If you lose God's love, you can't define the other three. The Bible says, for God so loved the world, agape the world, that he gave his only begotten son, that whosoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. Yeah. God's kind of love. The answers to life's most important questions then ultimately are not that hard to find. I've just, in casually and cursory way, this morning in a brief number of minutes, have actually helped you understand what God's truth is for our lives, how to find morality and parameters around morality and meaning and hope and love. So the answers really aren't that hard to find. They're not even that hard to accept. Because most of us who are listening to this message this weekend, we say, yeah, yeah, I actually, I believe that and I accept that. Here's the problem. We, we believe it and we agree to it, but the problem is actually applying it. We can hear it, agree to it, but accepting it personally into our lives implies something. It implies that we are going to have to make some changes in our life. And this is what truth does to us, isn't it? You know, the, the tr you shall know the truth, and the truth will make you free. And then someone added, but first it'll make you miserable. Be is that's the truth, isn't it? Because when you apply the truth, the implication of truth isn't that I can see it and agree to it and understand it. The problem is actually applying it and making it real in our own lives because it, it's going to require painful transitions and shifts in who we are. Pilate met with Jesus the night of the trial before he condemned him to death. He almost sarcastically looked at Jesus because of the conversation. He says, what is truth? What is truth? But the Bible says he walked away. He walked away from Jesus before Jesus had a chance to answer. Now we're left to speculate on why he would do that. Maybe he just didn't think Jesus would have a meaningful answer, but I think it's just the opposite. I don't think Pilate could handle the answer. You can't handle the truth. So you vacate the room. So what if Pilate looks Jesus in the face and says, what is truth? And Jesus looks right back at him and says, you're looking at truth. That might be more than you could absorb. The implications to Pilate's life would be too great. C.S. Lewis said it this way, if you look for truth, you'll find comfort. 
you look for truth, you'll find comfort. But if you look for comfort, you'll get neither truth nor comfort. Only soft soap to begin with, and in the end, despair. This weekend, I suspect that I'm going to be talking to a person of the Muslim faith, either in one of our services or online or something like that. Let me just address this to a person who may be of the Muslim faith. The greatest truth in the worldview of a Muslim is the greatness of God. It's, it's the highest value. God is the greatest being in the universe. Allahu Akbar. God is great. That's the highest value for a Muslim. And for the Muslim God, he's loving, but he's conditionally loving. So you have to earn God's love. But nevertheless, for the Muslim, if God is loving, he must be supremely loving because he's the greatest thing in the world. He's the greatest possible being. And so he would express the greatest possible ethic, which is love, in the greatest possible way. So for the, in the Muslim worldview, God is great, and the way God would express his love is the greatest way that it could be expressed. Now, if, if you're following that, what is the best possible way to express love? Is it to give someone a book, like the Quran, with a bunch of rules and regulations so that you can order your life properly? Well, that may be an act of love, but is it the ultimate expression of love? The greatest possible way I submit to you to express the greatest possible ethic is through self-sacrifice. Jesus said it, said it this way, greater love has no man than this, that, that one lay down his life for his friends. That's the ultimate expression of love. That's what it looks like. So if humans are able to express this supreme ethic of love, how much more should the greatest being in the universe be able to express that kind of love? And let me just say to any of our Muslim friends, the historic cross of Jesus Christ and the empty tomb proves that God has offered in the greatest expression of love, self-sacrificial love on behalf of those of us in need of forgiveness of our sins. And I invite you to receive this wonderful gift because God is great and God has expressed his love in the greatest possible way by self-sacrificially offering the life of his own son on your behalf. God is great. God is great. God is great. He's great. Because he's loved us supremely. Mm-hmm. Back to C.S. Lewis, he's my friend. He said, the great thing to remember is, though our feelings come and go, his love for us does not. It is not wearied by our sins or our indifference, for it is quite relentless in its determination that we should be cured of these sins at whatever cost to us and at whatever cost to him. Let me tell you one more story. Some of you have heard of Angola Prison in the state of Louisiana. It has been historically the most violent prison in America. Let me explain. Angola has 6,000 inmates. 6,000. And 85% of those inmates are serving a life sentence with no possibility of parole. It has historically been the most bloody prison in America. Blood on the ceilings, blood on the walls, blood on the floors, blood. Horribly violent. Just a few years ago, a new warden took control of Angola Prison and asked the state for permission to do what he thought best in order to try to change the violent culture of Angola Prison. 
the state said, well, it can't get any worse. You know, do what you can. So he gave him freedom to do whatever he wanted. This is what the new warden did. He took away all the weapons that they could find in the prison. Because before, they actually let the inmates keep weapons just for self-defense. Because there was going to be violence. But they took all the weapons that they could find out of the prison. Then a Bible was placed in every cell. There's a chapel service that is conducted now every day. A Bible college has been established in the prison. You can get a Bible degree if you're an inmate at Angola Prison. And all of the inmates, there are 6,000, there are different sections in the prison, but every section has an inmate pastor. The most mature and godly men that they could find in the prison are appointed as pastors so that every inmate at Angola Prison has a pastor. Angola Prison, just within the last few years, you haven't seen this on the news because no one would dare report it. Angola Prison has become one of the safest prisons in America. Does that surprise you? Doesn't surprise me. One young inmate who has now become a worship leader during these daily worship services at Angola was asked about his life. He said, I quote, I thought I was free in my life before, but the things I did destroyed people's lives and destroyed my own life. But now inside prison bars, having found Jesus Christ, I have never been more free in my life. He said, pray for my family. They're outside and think they're free, and they're not really free. Scores of inmates have found meaning and significance and purpose in life because of a relationship with Jesus Christ. Let me conclude. If you're a naturalist within the sound of my voice today or you hold to a scientific single vision of the world, you know, matter plus time plus chance equals everything, explains everything, then may you consider today, I invite you to think about, let, let the truth of what I'm saying find its way to its conclusions in your own mind and heart. Consider that a great self-sacrificing God has given the life of his very own son in order to demonstrate his extreme limitless love for you. And by accepting God into your own heart, you will find not only the answers to your heart's deepest longing, but the answers to your mind's deepest questions. Mm-hmm. Outside of Jesus Christ and a relationship with him, there are no answers for the taunting questions of your life. He is the answer. And so I invite you to consider him and the love he offers you. Amen? Would you pray with me? Let's pause. Lord, we thank you this morning for these thoughts. We thank you that you have given us as a free expression of your love the gifts of origins and meaning and morality and hope. Thank you that you have given us a sense of security, destiny. Lord, there's so many unanswered questions in our world. So help us to find the answers we search for in you. Knowing that if we reject you from our worldview, that we will become more and more incoherent. 
trying to answer these questions without you. So Lord, thank you for the gifts of morality and meaning and hope and love. I pray that you would help us all to embrace them first by faith and then with the clear thinking that you enable us. So help us, we pray. We need help. Help. Help, Lord. In Jesus' name we pray. And everyone said, amen.